lot of ills get thrown at the feet of the policing profession because it is the most forward-facing entity of government. And when you call 911, somebody shows up, no matter what the issue may be, whether it's a domestic or whether it's a kid that doesn't want to go to school. So there's a lot that's placed on policing in our country and around the world. There's a lot placed on police officers and there's a lot placed on police leaders. And that's why we spend a lot of time focused on ensuring that the policies, the practices, the research for policing is demonstrating the best course of action, but also engaged in active discussions regarding police reform about what resources are required and if and when someone other than the police should be involved in a given call or instance. It's a much broader policy issue that we talk about all the time to make sure, again, to the point that the ills are being placed at the feet of policing, but police aren't always the answer. This is Associations Thrive, the podcast celebrating successful associations and their leaders. I'm your host, Joanna Pineda, CEO and Chief Troublemaker at Matrix Group International. Listen in as top association executives tell all, revealing the creative and innovative ways they're increasing membership, generating revenue, nurturing engagement, and reimagining their organizations. By the way, if you've launched a new initiative, created new member services, or updated your governance structure and are seeing great results, I want to hear your story and so do my listeners. I'd love to have you as a guest. Go to podcast.matrixgroup.net and apply to be on Associations Thrive. Now let's dive into this week's show. Today, I'm speaking with Vince Tellucci, Executive Director and CEO of the International Association of Chiefs of Police, or the IACP. Vince, welcome to the show. It's great to be with you, Joanna. Hey, Vince, you and I have known each other a long time. Tell us about the IACP. We have known each other for a long time, so it's an honor to be with you today. And we came to know each other when I first arrived at IACP a long time ago. So the International Association of Chiefs of Police, otherwise known as the IACP, is the world's largest professional association for police leaders. We have more than 32,000 members around the world in 170 countries. We are based here in Alexandria, Virginia, but have a couple brick and mortar offices now in Abu Dhabi, as well as Seoul, South Korea, to make sure that we're serving our global members very ably and capably. We have a dynamic staff of about 140. And I have a board of directors that is about 48 people large that are made up of police leaders from around the globe. So from an IACP perspective, we've been around since 1893 and touch on all things research, programs, advocacy to benefit the policing profession. Again, while we have our members and we certainly serve our members, we see our vision and mission as serving the policing profession as a little bit more broad than making sure that we're serving our members, but making sure that we're reaching broadly the policing profession and doing everything we can to help advance the cause every day. Vince, that's interesting that you now have offices in Abu Dhabi and Seoul. Why the decision to open up those offices and why those locations? So for a long time, the I in IACP, this is not a critique, it's just an observation, felt more like a placeholder than an action. And as an organization that relies on the collective wisdom of police leaders, no matter where they are, 
we really wanted to make sure that we were reaching into the field the best way we could. And while, again, based in Alexandria, we get about the world pretty well, going to where the members are was really crucial to us. While we have two brick and mortar offices outside the United States right now, I certainly foresee a number of other offices potentially opening up as well to make sure that we're hearing from our members directly and that we're not just serving a, you know, the coalition of the willing that we're hosting a meeting and then flying back out, but going to where they are. Because I think the cultural differences, I think the geographic differences of policing around the world matters and making sure that we're meeting folks where they are, wherever that may be, is the ideal for any membership association. But from an IACP perspective, I see us on the linear path from being an international organization to being a global organization. And everything we do as an association, we're completely intentional about ensuring that we are global in nature and that we're thinking globally and that we're acting globally and that we're making sure that we're being everything we can, not only to our 18,000 domestic law enforcement agencies, but those countless agencies around the world. So Vince, many years ago, I sat in your office and you said, the thing about being in law enforcement is that you are called on to, to basically solve all of society's ills. I remember you saying something like, when there's a domestic incident, you call the police. When a kid doesn't show up at school, you call the police. When there's a robbery, you call the police. When there's an accident, you call the police. When someone has taken your identity, you call the police. That presents really challenging issues for law enforcement because you're basically, like I said, called on to solve all of society's ills. So what's it like to be in law enforcement these days? It's tough. It's tough because you have the vast majority of police doing the right thing at the right time for the right reasons, responding to every call that comes in. And they have to be right all the time amidst public scrutiny, amidst ensuring that they're being the best they can and taking care of themselves. You have officer safety and wellness issues, not only from going to a call that you don't know what the outcome of that call may end up being, to the collective trauma that officers see on a daily basis that ends up being another rock in that backpack that they have to carry about. So we're very concerned about officer safety and wellness, making sure officers and agencies are taking care of the folks that take care of us. But again, having a broader systems conversation to ensure the most able entity that can help solve a problem is the entity that's helping solve that problem. Because as you say, Joanna, and I remember the conversation like it was yesterday, a lot of ills get thrown at the feet of the policing profession because it is the most forward-facing entity of government. And when you call 911, somebody shows up, no matter what the issue may be, whether it's a domestic or whether it's a kid that doesn't want to go to school. So there's a lot that's placed on policing in our country and around the world. There's a lot placed on police officers and there's a lot placed on police leaders. And that's why we spend a lot of time focused on ensuring that the policies, the practices, the research for policing is demonstrating the best course of action, but also engaged in active discussions regarding police reform about what resources are required and if and when someone other than the police should be involved in a given call or instance. It's a much broader policy issue that we talk about all the time to make sure, again, to the point that the ills are being placed at the feet of policing, but police aren't always the answer. Right, right. Hey, Vince, before we talk about the things that the ICP is doing to thrive, and thriving you are, 
Tell us about your journey to becoming executive director and CEO, because it's been a winding path, and yet you've been there a long time. Yeah, it's a great question. And if you would have asked me 20-some years ago if I would have been in this position, I would have laughed. So I began my professional career in engineering design. I was still trying to work and finish out my degree after seven years at night, doing a job that helped ends meet, but did not like it. I didn't have a passion for it. It was important work, but I was always interested and curious about criminal justice. Finished out my degree, dropped out of being a full-time employee, went back to school full-time to get my graduate degree. And while I was in graduate school, I interned with a couple of police agencies in the Pacific Northwest, Seattle Police Department and the Kirkland Police Department. And this is the career advice that I'd give to anybody. It's as important to know what you don't want to do as what you may be interested in. Agreed. And engineering was not my cup of tea. I knew that early on, but I always had a curiosity about criminal justice, thought about being a police officer, thought about being a federal agent. And Seattle Police Department created an internship for me back then with some grant dollars that they had left over. And I was there during a completely transformational time to go into the community policing model and then going to Kirkland Police Department and help them rewrite their policies and procedures manual. That led me to an interest in criminal justice. I competed for a fellowship when I was in graduate school. I earned a fellowship to the National Institute of Justice, the research and development arm of the Justice Department, was there for five years. And really from there, I had a great job. I loved NIJ, but an opportunity came up at IACP. They were looking for somebody with experience, both working at Justice and at the White House. And I had a detail at the White House for a bit. I came over to IACP in 2002 served in a number of different capacities. And then I got promoted to a director. And then I left in 2010. I was about done with the DC experience. And you went a completely different direction. Completely different direction. I ended up going to what was then heralded as the best company in the country to work for, SAS, down in Cary, North Carolina. My job down there was to think through business problems that criminal justice entities were having and how analytics could help. It was the most freeing experience I've had because I didn't manage anyone and I didn't create anybody. I would just think about business problems and how to help them build stuff to fix those business problems. Wow. Yeah. Two and a half years into it, I had the opportunity to come back to IACP under a, a new executive director to punch some stuff across the goal line that were getting hung up and came back. And a couple of years later, I was named the executive director. So I've been in and around this organization in various capacities, whether it was a grantee or a grantor, a committee member, a committee liaison, a vendor, various capacities and leadership within the ISP. But each step of the way, I learned a great deal about this organization. I learned a great deal about associations and I learned a great deal about policing. I have to say the one thing that I will add, Joanna, regarding my time at SAS, albeit brief, yeah, it was almost like a sabbatical. Huh. It took me away from something that I loved enough to remind me how much I loved it to come back and selling two houses, moving back and forth between the Northern Virginia area and, and Cary was a big deal and it was a big ask, but I wouldn't have recreated any part of my path from engineering to intern to NIJ to IACP to SAS back to IACP. I wouldn't have changed anything looking back. Well, and Vince, first of all, that police department that took you on as an intern, they probably now say, wow, Vince Delucci got a start here. So, you know, they claim you as their own. But I guess the second thing is, since you were working for SAS, do you bring a greater insight to the organization because of all this analytics that you worked on? 
Oh, yeah. So a couple things. I learned a great deal from each opportunity. The engineering design, albeit I disliked it every waking moment, it taught me the respect of a life cycle of a project, right? I was a designer. I would bring the design to life of what the engineer wanted, right? So I understood sort of seeing something from beginning to conclusion. SAS taught me about the intersection of private sector, nonprofit, and government. It taught me the ability to look at problems in different ways. I still use today sort of the analytic methods that I learned at SAS. We have dashboards built out. We have the AI and the artificial intelligence going on certain things. Wow. So it gave me a leg up on better understanding the technology that would be coming down the pike because I was living it real time as it was being developed. And so before it was ready for prime time, we would test, we would understand sort of the theoretical underpinnings of what we were creating, and then we would create something. So assess that experience. It's a great question, Joanna. Not only was it like a sabbatical because it was a cool place. I could play Frisbee golf during the day if I wanted to. And there was a piano player in the cafeteria, but that's an aside. What? Yeah. Yeah. It also taught me understanding the underpinnings of technology and how it could be used. Again, the other piece of it that I learned from it was it was the best company to work for. And there was reasons it was the best company to work for the policies and the approaches and apply it to the best of my ability in a different context. So you brought two things to the IACP. One is probably how to become a data-driven organization, but also how to become a great organization to work for. Yeah, because there were things that SAS did really well, and there were things that IACP did really well, and there were things that SAS didn't do really well, and there were things that IACP didn't do really well. But you take the best of any entity that you work for, and you try to accentuate those things. I tell the staff here all the time that whatever position you're in, you keep that mental checklist of things that you would change if you ever had the ability to make the change. Ah, so what did you change at ICP that you learned at SAS? Uh, I, the technology, the data-driven decision-making, some of the policies and the benefits that we have here. You know, it's again, making that checklist, you know, when I started, Joanna, when we met back in 2002, making that checklist of things that I would change if I ever got the ability to change and then picking up things along the way, whether here at ISP or whether it's SAS, about how to change those things. Amazing. And so for me, the journey is the fun part of this. From an association leadership perspective, you know, my most rewarding experience is seeing staff that grow and develop in this organization and ideally stay here and prosper, right? Or if they end up leaving and going and doing something else and they do great things someplace else, that's the legacy items. Absolutely. Absolutely. And for the time that they're there, if they're doing an excellent job, that's all you can ask for, right? Right. Right. And again, we try to put people in positions to succeed. And again, it's one of those things. One of the other benefits of it is, you know, we just had an all staff meeting last week. I put myself still in that seat, right? What did I want to know when I was just starting at the IACP that I didn't know? What did I want my leadership to know about me as a professional that I wanted my leadership then to know that I may have not told them or I may have, you know, just sort of stored it away. For me, we have a really communicative, transparent organization here. That's a SaaS feature, but that's also an IACP feature of things that I would have done differently. Again, not a critique of the past. We're two different organizations from when I started to where we are today, but putting myself in the position of never forgetting where I came from. I still meet with the interns when they come in. We have a crop of interns that come in each semester. And I talk about the value of my Seattle internship and I talk about the value of my Kirkland internship. And what I want to know from each of them is 
that their experience was as rewarding as mine was back then, because if it's not, we're going to make a change. Neat. And we have 140 folks. And so we're not a small organization, but you have to put the premium on the people. You have to make sure that you have your finger on the pulse of what's going on. You're not going to make everybody happy all the time. And as a leader, I wouldn't be doing my job if that was the case. Right, right. But again, it's the people, both the volunteer leadership and the volunteers that engage on a regular basis, but also the 140 dedicated staff that do whatever they can to advance this organization and the, and the policing profession. So Vince, your membership has increased nine years straight while increasing dues twice. That's phenomenal, right? So you would have expected that as you increase dues, that you might have some drop-off. But also nine years straight, that's not a blip. That means you're doing the right things and there's some intention behind that that's really contributing to your success. So let's talk about that because that's amazing. Let's start with some governance changes that you put in place, including expanding the definition of who can be a member. So tell us about this because this was controversial but has really fueled your growth. So one of the things that we did right off the bat, probably about 10 years ago now, was get a better understanding because we had membership had plateaued for a while and we were the IACP. So the membership was what the membership was. We wanted to get a better understanding of why that plateau existed. So we did a bunch of focus groups. Let me back up. So your members were chiefs of police or basically police officers in positions of leadership. So even like assistant police chiefs, right? Correct. But somehow you had plateaued, meaning you could have been growing and there were other police chiefs who could have been members, but they weren't. Correct. So now you're trying to figure out why. Yes. For us, we look at it clean. There's the ability to be a member and you're not. So you're making a cognizant choice. Why is that choice being made? Okay. So we start with that premise of understanding sort of the decision for those that are eligible to be members and choose not to be. That's one piece. So we needed to reach that component of folks as well to better understand why they were making that decision. But then we started talking about the fact that we can't just be focused on today's leadership. As an organization that's been around for uh, coming up on our 130 year anniversary, we needed to better understand how we're going to be around for another 130 years. Right. So how do you reach that crop of next generation leaders? So we'll put the present members aside for a second. We started reaching out to mid-career professionals and early career professionals in the DMV area, DC metropolitan area, to get a sense of what was the barrier to them joining IACP? Because while they were potentially eligible, we wanted to best understand the perception to which would lead them to choose not to join. And Joanna, to a focus group of mid-career professionals, the words chiefs of police was the barrier. Ah. So while they may have been eligible to join as an associate member level, one, that chiefs of police kept them from the belief that they could join. Ah, So they had no idea they could even join. They had no idea that they could join in that category. The other piece of it was culturally, their chiefs of police may have seen it as a chief's organization that they wouldn't have allowed them to join. Sure. They had that velvet rope. You got to reach a certain level to be a member. Right. And the same thing. So we started taking a look at those barriers, right? And how do you deconstruct those barriers? One, AARP did it really well by going from the American Association of Retired Persons, because I believe I'm eligible. I'm not going to say if I'm eligible or not, but I believe I may be eligible. (laughs) But I don't see myself anywhere near being of retired persons, right? I may join AARP because of the benefits it provides and the value proposition for someone in my age category. 
Same thing existed for IACP. The greatest barrier to joining IACP and advancing and making sure that we continued to grow the organization was the name and was the cultural disconnect between whether I can join and be a member of a chief's organization or not. So we just needed to do a better job of clarifying who we were. And then alongside of that, making governance changes that enumerated more clearly that we want to invest in our leaders of tomorrow. And that's why we have an associate leaders of tomorrow category for membership so that we're not just saying, hey, join IACP, but join IACP. And here's the beginning of your professional association within IACP's journey. And are they full members? Is that new category, are they full members? They're associate members, so they're not voting members, but they're members of the associate. They have access to everything that an active member would have access to, except the ability to vote. So that's one piece. But the other piece is, like you said, nine years in a row, two dues increases. Model would suggest it would have been something different than where we are. We were changing at the same time. So while we changed the governance and we added categories and, and expanded the opportunity, expanded the aperture, we still needed to do a better job of telling our story. Hmm. Because for a long time, we were the IACP. We would say when things were good and when things were bad. I think one of the most pivotal moments for us to be more introspective and retrospective about who we are and what we needed to be was Ferguson from a organization perspective. Right, right. So I became the executive director, I think four months before Ferguson happened. And one of the things we needed to do before Ferguson was modernize the organization from my perspective. And we are going down that path to rethink how we are structured, what the staffing models look like, all that. And then Ferguson happens and the external pressures for change begin relative to the policing world. So from an IECP perspective, what Ferguson taught us was to be more introspective and retrospective about who we were and what we wanted to do and what we wanted to be. At the same time, we were changing internally. So we didn't have the choice to sequence those. We couldn't say, hey, let's time out. Let's slow the internal process down. The internal process was a long-term component for us to make sure that we we're doing the best we could for our members and for the profession. The external forces around Ferguson really helped us and our executive board and our board of directors think about what we wanted to be. And that led to a strategic planning process so I have to say, as difficult as Ferguson was on the policing profession, hmm. it served as a trigger moment for us to be better because we stopped, we paused, we thought, we had a lot of discussions with the board and staff regarding IACP, the policing profession, what we needed to do and change, and took us in a direction that built a platform and a foundation for solid growth because it changed our value proposition. It changed how we communicated. It changed how we did our work. It changed everything. And again, I can't stress enough that internal, external, non-choice of what needed to come first. So we needed to do both. We needed to modernize as an organization based on those lessons learned that we talked about previously, data-driven, evidence-based, Meanwhile, the entire world is focused on Ferguson and the entire policing world is focused on Ferguson. It was a really interesting dynamic and a really pivotal time for the ISP that I think we came out on the better side of things, albeit really difficult in the policing world. As an outsider that has worked with you, during that time, what we saw was an organization that was saying, how do we stay very relevant to our members? I remember having a conversation with the chief of staff one of the chiefs of staff at one point, and he said, Joanna, when something happens, 
in a town or a city and the chief says, I got to get educated fast on a topic. I want to be able to go to the ICP either via phone call or through the website or ICP net and say, what do I need to know about X topic? I've got a press conference in two hours. So I think what I saw you guys doing was really positioning yourselves as having the really timely and relevant guidance and then making it easier to get it. Yeah. And and that was that value proposition. And the, to take your example a little further, it was not just that chief worried about that issue in their town. It was the ripple effect of the neighboring town or the town across the country in another, ah. another state. So what we tried to do was make sure that we had resources available to folks grappling with like issues where one, we could share leading practices. Two, we could connect folks in a way to make sure that we're sharing those leading practices, practitioner to practitioner, and also having real candid, frank conversations about what we needed to do or what the police profession needed to do from that introspective and retrospective perspective to be better. And it paved a lot of roads for us to make sure that we're having important policy discussions at the highest level of government. It also taught us to say, hey, when things aren't great, say things aren't great. But be part of the conversation. But be part of the conversation, because if you're invited to be part of the conversation and you choose not to be part of the conversation, you deserve everything that's coming your way. And that's why for us, one of the biggest pieces for IACP relative to that relevance component is we are in the room for the conversations. We may not like the outcome of every conversation. We may not be thrilled with the discussion, but we're in the room and we have a seat at the table for important policy decisions that are happening in the United States, and again, outside of the United States, whether it's you know with the Interpols and the Europols and, and all of our international partners, we're in the room for those discussions. And that relevance doesn't come from us just being the ISP, it comes from the advocacy weight that our members provide us. It comes from being the honest brokers that we're seen to be. Because the nice part about ISP and for all associations, I you know, not everyone's 130 years old, but we have policy positions that we're grounded in. We call balls and strikes. And that's why we're invited to that next meeting. Again, not everybody's going to love what we have to say. Not everybody's going to love our approach, but you always know you're going to get a consistent, honest answer from the ISP regarding something that's happening in the policing world. So when there's a local jurisdiction that says, hey, we want to put in new laws related to dash cams and body cams, you're part of the conversation, even if you don't like the conversation. We'll inform that conversation. We stay much at the broader level, but we'll have resources for a police chief in a local jurisdiction to make that educated decision about which direction to go in. Or if we're having a policy argument about qualified immunity or use of force at the national level, we will pass along those talking points that we're using to all those folks at the state level and local level to make sure that we're talking about the same sheet of music. Again, we may have policy disagreements within the policing world about what's the right course, But what we're going to do is we're going to share our best thinking about the topic and be able to start a conversation at least. You know, Vince, I looked at your analytics a while back, and the most popular section of the website was the model policies. Mm -hmm. And I guess that's not a surprise to you. So if a chief says, oh, my God, we need some guidance on a policy for whatever it is, dash cams, for example, they can go to your website and find it. They can. It's decades old. We've been doing the Model Policy Center for decades regarding the most pressing topics of the day. So someone doesn't have to recreate the wheel. They can go on to the Model Policy Center and find that dash camera or the body-worn camera policy and take the best of it, 
ignore some of it. And then behind the model policy, we have a discussion paper that talks about the pros and cons of how to go about doing things. We have those resources available for our members. And again, when there's something that's really pressing, Joanna, like it's a top of mind issue, like our use of force, we pulled together 11 of the other professional associations to make sure that we were speaking with as close to one voice as possible to develop a consensus use of force policy to say, look, if you're grappling with use of force in your jurisdiction, here's our best thinking. Adapt it, amend it, whatever you need to do, but here's a baseline where to start. Make sure that whatever you do is going to be solid in your jurisdiction, but here's a place to start so you don't have to try to recreate this wheel. Right. And what I've seen is that you provide it quickly Mm -hmm. without a whole lot of months and years of thinking about it because your members need it yesterday. They need it yesterday. And the other piece of that is we have a lot of stuff behind our member wall, right? The model policies to differentiate between the membership benefits and non, we put quite a bit of stuff behind the wall. However, on the most pressing issues of the day, that model policy goes out for anyone to use. The media can grab it. The law enforcement agencies can grab it. However you want to use it and take it and dissect it, criticize it, amend it again, amend it, adopt it, whatever you need to do. It's there for you to see and do to be, again, as transparent as possible, especially that consensus use of force, given it's such a tenuous topic. We try to be as transparent and communicative as possible to ensure that everybody has the same sheet of music when you're dealing with a given topic that may be a hot button issue like use of force. Hey, switching topics. Yep. IACP has been very successful at going after and securing grant money for specific initiatives. And I've actually had other organizations in law enforcement say the IACP is just really, really good at this. I bet that has fueled some of your success as well. So good work begets more work. That's how we talk about it around here. We do really solid work and we have a solid foundation regarding a reputation on doing good work. And that enables us to do really well in seeking out grant funding. Because you've got a history of success. Because we have a history. The other thing that we don't do, Joanna, is we don't just go grab grants. It has to be tied to the strategic plan. We turn more things away Mm. than a lot of groups because of the fact we're focused, we're big, and we have a lot of issues that we're grappling with, but we stay focused on what needs to be focused upon. The strategic plan is invaluable in that. And so for our work in DOJ, Department of Justice, we have been really fortunate to get a good number of grants over the years, but that's as a result of solid staff work, maximizing the reach to the field, showing that we can do the most good with the investment that we're given. And then when we think that we can do something different or better, we'll walk away and go invest someplace else. Wow. So we don't, we don't just drag something out until it's taken away from us. We want to make sure that we're using our resources and our resources are our people and the funds that we have. And we are solid stewards of the taxpayer's dollar. We never want to lose focus upon that. Well, you know, your prominence and your success and the good work that you're doing, I think is why... Didn't the Michael Jordan Foundation give you and the NAACP money? They did. And that was huge that it was the IACP. It was huge. And that was, I'd love to say that we were working that proposal. We submitted that proposal. I went and met with Michael Jordan, but none of that happened. I got a call late on a Sunday night from uh, somebody that said, I'm calling on behalf of so-and-so philanthropic organization. An anonymous donor wants to give you a million dollars to work on community police engagement in the height of a lot of the social discourse. And I said, well, one, I can't take an anonymous 
contribution, so I'll need to know who it is, and ended up being Michael Jordan. And because of the fact that he was so invested in solid community police engagement from his time with Chicago, time in Charlotte, he invested his own money. These weren't foundation dollars. These were Michael Jordan's funds that went to us and the NAACP Legal Defense Fund to do good work with it. And that good work begets more work. And this year we received a donation from Mackenzie Scott for another good size amount to go out and do the most good we could possibly can. And so that level of trust that funders have with us is a product of our work. It's a product of the dissemination, the change. We can move the needle. We talk about it all the time. IACP can move the needle on policing-related issues, and that's what we do. Boy, that's amazing. Vince, I can sit here and talk to you all day. And in fact, I would love to have you back to talk about some of these other things that you're doing, how you're maximizing volunteer leadership, your recruitment and retention strategies. But I know that you're a very busy man. So I want to thank you for the amazing insights and experiences that you've shared with us today. And I hope you'll come back. Anytime. Let's do part two, Joanna. Let's definitely do a part two. Congratulations on all your success. Uh, Thanks for having me. It's great seeing you. Thanks for listening to Associations Thrive. We're so glad to have you here. You know, my personal mission and the mission of my company, Matrix Group International, is to help associations and nonprofits increase membership, generate revenue, and thrive in the digital space. I want to hear stories of how your organization is thriving in today's challenging landscape. Please apply to be on my show by going to podcast.matrixgroup.net. By the way, do you need help with a digital initiative? Maybe it's a website redesign, a new membership database, or a hybrid meeting that you're planning. I'd love to connect with you. Please visit the Matrix Group website at matrixgroup.net. Thanks again for listening to this week's episode of Associations Thrive. Don't forget to subscribe to the show, leave a five-star rating, post a comment, and share it with your colleagues and friends. Bye.